Psalm 93. Psalm 93. It's a short psalm. Five verses. Psalm 93, not five verses. And the theme, Be still We draw near to you as sinners saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. O Lord, all the temptations that assail us, the temptations, the risings of sin within our hearts, when we are tempted to pride, tempted to unbelief, tempted to doubt, tempted to anger, tempted to lust, tempted to jealousy, tempted to disobedience and so many sins and yet His mercy is more. Thank you for the great mercy shown to us in the Lord Jesus that you sent your Son, your only begotten, your beloved Son to die for our sins. Lord, please cleanse us anew and wash our hearts in the blood of the Lamb that we will be whiter than snow. In Jesus' name, give us an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen. Now Daniel in the Bible, the prophet Daniel, he had many visions. So he, he had many visions and in one of those visions in Daniel chapter 8, it was so overwhelming when God predicted the future and gave him prophecies about the future, that he was so overwhelmed he became sick. For many days he lay in his bed sick because he couldn't understand what the Lord was saying about the future. And you know, I wonder if we aren't the same. We, we get confused, we get anxious, we panic, we get worried when we see what, what has happened over the past 20 months with COVID, lockdowns, evil governments, corrupt governments, loved ones getting sick, loved ones dying. And we get all anxious and tensed up. And you know, in, in, the, in the West, I'm talking about Western culture, Westerse Wereld, we, it's, it's almost like you can hear the footsteps of the persecutors behind us. So, wanneer gaan die kerk vervolg word in Australia? When's persecution, when the, when's the heat going to be turned on in the United States, in Canada, in South Africa? And so what, what does the future hold, we wonder? What God wants us to do is what that theme says. Be still and know that I am God. And not only for Christians, God even says that to his enemies. Be still. So let's read Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. 
Mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So we're going to look at different attributes of God this evening. Godse karakter eigenskap is hy volkomen hede. Sy attribute, wat nou anglicisme is. Number one, sovereignty and eternity. Soeverein die tyd of soeverein en ewig is die hede. That's in verse one and two. So, sovereign first. Now, Joshua helped us to cut down a large tree in our yard. And then God, God and service, service uh, finished the job. Because he's only got a saw he needs to work with uh, diesel power. <laughs> So they came with chainsaws when it was all the branches were cut off. They just finished the job. Now we got lots of wood and, it, and we got a boma in our yard. So lots of wood and a fireplace makes a big fire. Now the Lord is also a fire. He's like a fire, the Bible teaches us. But he's like a fire that can burn without anything. He doesn't need fuel. He doesn't need wood. He doesn't need any other fuel. Remember when Moses when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, what happened to that bush? Did it burn up? There was a fire, but the bush didn't burn up. God is a consuming fire, and yet God is a fire that doesn't need fuel to burn. So he's the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is I am who I am. So God is self-sufficient, self-standig, uh, self-onerhodend. God is self-sufficient, and God is independent, unafhankelijk. He doesn't need us. God doesn't need His creation. Like that fire doesn't need the wood. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need the, the worship of angels. He doesn't need the worship of anyone. We read in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, God says that He does not live in temples made by human hands. He is not worshipped by human hands, as though he needed anything, as he himself gives to all, to all of us life and breath and everything. We need God. God does not need us. A.W. Tozer said that if every single human being on the planet suddenly became blind at, in one moment of time, then the, the sun would still give its light and the stars will still give their light at night. And then he, then he finishes the illustration by saying that's how God is. If every single human being on the planet tomorrow would become an atheist, then God would still be God. That would not change anything. It wouldn't change God in the least. God remains king. He sits as king, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He rules. And he's a king that does not need servants. He's a king that does not need an army. You see, earthly princes and earthly kings, they need, a, if, if you've got a king with a very large army, and that king has got even an even larger army, then that is the stronger king probably. Or in Proverbs chapter 14, it says, without people a prince is ruined. So a prince wordt vernietig as hy nie a volk het om oor te regeer nie. God is not like that. Even if no one in the whole world worshipped God, even if there was no angel in heaven worshipping God, 
God would still be king. God would still reign. God would still rule. You see, the majesty of God is in God. Hy is nie soos een aardse prins sy majesteit lee en hoeveel onderdane hy het en hoeveel soldate het nie. The majesty of God and the glory of God lies within himself. Verse 1. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. It says, nee, so Godse majesteit, his majesty covers him like a robe. And then he puts his strength on as a, like a belt, as a belt. It says, also, it tells us in verse 1, soos amper sies jy gordel om jou jippe sit, soos sit God sy sterkte om hom. And by that be- very power, God has established the earth, and die aarde gevestig. Verse 1, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. So why, did, why is the world established? Why does it remain steadfast? Because the one who made it is steadfast. The one who created all things, the one who rules over it. Now the Hebrew word therefore for steadfast, or established at least in verse 1. The Hebrew word there is, it's in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense means it's something that happened in the past, but it's not completed yet. So if it says God established the earth, that happened in the past, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but it's not completed. Uh, the right interpretation of that, it's something that happened in the past, but it's still got an effect in the future. And so what happens then, the implication of that is, God created the world in the beginning, but He's still involved. It's not that God has just now, He's created the world, and He's turned His back, and now the world just goes on by the laws of nature, and uh, natural disasters happen, and God has got no control over that. No, no. God is the one who forms the thunder clouds, the storm clouds with his breath, with his hand. God is the one who keeps the stars. God is the one who keeps the planets moving in orbit. God is the one who feeds the lions and who feeds the ravens, the crows. God is the one who makes the grass grow. God is the one who lets the rain pour down from the sky. Psalm 104, Psalm 147. Nothing is left to chance. Niks word aan toeval oorgelaat nie. The, luck, there exists no such thing as luck. Not even COVID, not even evil governors and evil kings and evil rulers of the earth, dictators, not even the floods happening or that happened in this past week in George in the Southern Cape. God sits as king over the flood, Psalm 29 verse 10. God is the one who sent the flood in the days of Noah that covered the whole earth. God says in Deuteronomy 32 verse 39, the Lord says, I wound, I heal, I kill, I make alive. There's no one who can save from my hand. God is the one who says in Daniel 2 verse 21, I set kings up, I cast them down. God is the one who says in Ephesians 1 verse 11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He's the sovereign one. Sovereign means that He's in control of all things. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. So when it says in verse 1, you have established the earth. It's God. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. It is not the sun that keeps the earth in its place. Want ek weet, wetenskap moet ons nou vir ons sê, dis die massa van die son wat die aarde in sy plek hou en sy wentel. That's not true. What was created first? The earth or the sun? The earth. 
So who is it that establishes the world that, as Job 26 verse 7 says, that hangs the earth on nothing? Who is it? It is God. And God who controls everything in the world. So no meteor is going to wipe the earth out. So-called climate change will not bring an end to the earth. Verse 1 says, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Only when Jesus returns, he will melt the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 12. And even then, even then, he will not completely destroy the earth, but he will create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Or is it, yeah, verse 13. And so back to verse 1. You have a, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Why is the world established in verse 1? The answer is in verse 2. Because God's throne is established. Because God controls all things and He holds it. He holds it in His hand. God rules heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. Psalm 135 verse 6. You rule the raging seas. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 89 verse 9. Psalm 115 verse 3. That says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. So the Heer is absolute in beheer van die dinge. Sy troon is oor alles. Hier sê dit vir ons in vers 2. Sy troon is gevestig. Sy troon staan vast. Alright, so that's the sovereignty of God. His rule. Let's look at the eternity of God. Sy eeuwigheid. So when you watch a movie, and at the bottom of the screen, suddenly the screen goes black, and then at the bottom it says, or in the middle, 20 years later. Now for the, for the people in the movie, the characters in this story, it's 20 years that has now progressed. And time has passed. But for you watching the movie, it's about three seconds. It works something, something of that sort. It works with us and God. So God is the creator of time. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning. God's the creator of time. And God can work in time if He wishes, but God is not bound to time. He's not limited by time. God exists outside of time. Not like us who are caught up in time. God rules. God exists. Since when? Verse 2, end. From everlasting. Since forever, God has existed. So God is outside time. Psalm 90 verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 102 verse 27. Your years will have no end. Isaiah 57 verse 15. You who inhabits eternity. Hy bewoon die eeuwigheid. Dis sy plek, is eeuwigheid. For to, to the Lord, 2 Peter 3 verse 8, one day is as a thousand years. And now you would want to say, then two days must be like 2,000. No, then a thousand years is as one day. <laughs> God doesn't exist in the realm of time. 
God does not have a past or a future. Het nie verlede of a toekomst nie. God is simply exists in the eternal now. This morning I think we, either we read it or we sang it in one of the songs. Who was and is and is to come. God wat is en was en wat sal kom. Now listen to this quote by John MacArthur. God was and is and is to come all at once. So God exists in one moment of time for us, but for him, one, you can't even say one moment in eternity. I can't think outside of time because we exist in time. But God exists in Revelation, uh, Revelation 22 verse 21 and in Genesis 1 verse 1 simultaneously. In one moment he exists, beginning of the Bible, end of the Bible. Because there's no time with God. God is an eternal being. Verse 2 again. You are from everlasting. God begins where? Nowhere. God ends? Nowhere. God's center is everywhere. God's center is everywhere. His circumference is nowhere. So center is also on track is nowhere. To quote one of the Puritans called Thomas Watson. Should I ascend to heaven? You are there. Should I go to the world of the dead, to Sheol, to try and make my bed there? You are there. You, you cannot escape from God. You go anywhere and God is there. Not a part of God. God in his fullness is there. You cannot measure God in kilometers. You cannot measure God in light years. You cannot say, let's walk from here to Cairo, or let's walk from here to Stockholm, let's walk from here to wherever, Vladivostok, and you say, now I've covered so much of God, you haven't, God is an eternal spirit, He is everywhere present at the same time, even if you should go to the furthest parts of the universe, God is an God is an infinite spirit. He's a spirit with no beginning and no end. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13 in the English Standard Version. So in God's eyes, creation and the universe is minuscule and miniature. The mountains he weighs in scales, says Isaiah 40 verse 12. He measured all the waters of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean. He measured it in the hollow of his hand, in the palm of his hand. The whole universe, the whole reaches, the furthest reaches of the universe, the sky, he measured it with the span of his hand. It's just like, boink, there's the universe. And then God fills the universe. He fills the heaven and the earth. Jeremiah 23 verse 24. Where can you flee from God? Where can you go where God is not? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? God says in that verse. And what would happen? Let's say you could reach the end of the universe. And by the way, there is an end to the universe. Don't think it goes on forever, does not because otherwise the creature is as great as the creator. It doesn't. Yesaiah 40 said it. We don't know where that is. But let's say you could go in a rocket and you could go a trillion times faster than the speed of light and you could reach the end of the universe. What would be on the other side? God. 
So God fills the heavens and the earth. God fills the universe, but He's not limited to it. God will be on the other side. You know, our minds are too small to understand God, to fathom God, to get a grasp on God. And that great thought must calm your fears and calm your panic and calm your anxiety. Morris Roberts, a Scottish author, says, the mere thought of God should end all anxiety. Panic is possible only when God is removed from our thoughts by visible circumstances. We start worrying when we look at what's going on around us. There is no situation in life too hard for God. That impatient urge inside us to resign and run away when times are difficult, that is unworthy of the children of God. Life's secret very largely consists in holding God in our thoughts as much as possible, and especially in times of fear and need. Number two, exalted and omnipotent. Omnipotent means almighty. Verhewe en almachtig, verse 3 and 4, we find that. Now, if God, if God is at the center of a country or a government, at the center of their thoughts and the, uh, the center of the way they work in that country, there you will see prosperity in that country. In that country, you will see steadfastness. Uh, it's established and it's a strong country. You find that, for instance, in Proverbs 14, verse 3 and 4. You find that in verse, verse 1 and 2, where God has established the world and God, His throne is established. So He's on the throne, we glorify Him. But where people forget God, where a government forgets God, where rulers and presidents and kings and princes forget God, you will find a country in chaos. You will find a country that is as unstable as water. <coughs> they like the sea and they, they rise against God and they're in opposition against God and they rebel against the Almighty. Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. So there's an obstant tien Now why do I say the floods refers to nations? Because Psalm 46 does that. Uh, so it's a common picture in the Old Testament. Let me give you one more example. Isaiah 17, Isaiah, verse 12 and 13. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. The roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. And then God will rebuke them and so on. Here you find the same thing. God is on the throne. And here you have these, these puny little people, these little ants, these insects shaking their fists at the Almighty and trying to get at God. And because they can't reach Him, verse 4 says, he, the Lord on high is mighty, the waves won't reach Him. Because they can't reach Him, what do they do? They try to reach His children. They persecute the children of God. But they will not overwhelm us. These waves will not overwhelm us because God says, Psalm 61, verse 3 and 4, He leads us to the rock that, he, that is higher than we are. He leads us to a rock that is too high for us, but He sets us on the rock. And these waves will not drown us, and the waters will not overwhelm us. Psalm 32 says, uh, when these floods rage, and when the water rages, 
They will not reach those who trust in the Lord. So let the world come. Let the unbelievers come. Let the governments come. And they can do all in their power to try and drown the church. It is impossible for them to pull God from His throne. It is impossible for them to snatch us from the hand of our Father. They'll be like waves dashing and dashing and waves roaring and they dash against a mountain. What will they do to the mountain? Verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So you see what the world wants. The world does not want God to rule over them. They say like, you see in verse 1 and 2, you see God is on the throne, He reigns, but verse 3, they don't want Him to reign. They want to pull Him down from His throne. And so they say to the Lord, we do not want you to rule over us. Like Jesus told a parable in Luke 19 verse 14 where the people said actually of Jesus, we don't want you as our king. We don't want you. And so when, when the Lord comes and he even sends his missionaries to those countries, what do they say? We don't want the knowledge of the Almighty. Job 21. And when the Messiah comes, the Son of God, and He brings the message of love and salvation, they say, we don't want your Messiah. We don't want you. Crucify Him. Give us Barabbas. And when God sends His missionaries, as in Acts 22, away with Him, they shout of the Apostle Paul. We don't want this. You see, in Western society, Western society is anti-God. We don't want God in the public sector. We don't want God in our schools. We don't want God in government. <coughs> we don't even want God in our theological colleges, our theological training colleges where we train pastors. Because the Big Bang and evolution created the world and everything in it, not God. And so, so please, we don't want much of Genesis 1. Take that out of our Bibles. We don't want Genesis 1. We don't even want Genesis 1 with God's definition of malehood and femalehood. Masculinity and femininity. Don't let God tell us what a male and a female is. That's a myth. We'll, we'll make up our own definitions. You can be 58 genders if you want to. You can choose what you want to be. Bisexual, transsexual, transgender. And then to, to, keep, to, to spread their poison, what they do is now they want to come, they want a foot in the church's door, they want to come into government, uh, uh, Christian institutions, they want a foot in the door, so they want, not like the government in North Korea, they want to be your God. And so now that happens even in Australia. They're fighting for that. They want to tell you what you can teach your children and you can't teach your children. They want to now, now tell you, as is, as is happening at this very moment in Australia. And I read articles this week, and my brother-in-law told me about this, what's going on. Where now people in, in government, they're pushing for this, so if you, if you have a Christian school that you started, you want to teach your children Christian principles and children can come and you want to teach them about Christ, you can't do that. That's what they want to push through and the, even the president is standing against these people. He's standing for the Christians. But so now they want to say, you can't just appoint Christians as staff, as teachers at your school. If a homosexual applies for a job at your Christian school, or if an atheist applies, if a Muslim applies at your school, you may not say, no, we don't accept that CV. You must welcome them. 
Or what about the Papuda Amendment Bill in South Africa that some people are trying to push? No more freedom of speech. No more freedom of religion. We want to control what you do and what you say, even in your church. And they rise like waves against the Lord, verse 3. Ella swells his hall, they're lifting up against the Lord. And if they could, they would pull him from his throne and they would place themselves on the throne and declare themselves to be God. Isn't that what Satan, I quoted that this morning, isn't that what Satan said to Eve? You can be like God. You don't need God. Isn't that what Satan himself did according to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 and 14? I will ascend to to this height. I will make myself like the Most High. I will be God. But they will fail. They will fail because God is mighty. God is exalted. He's forever. Verse 4 at the end. The Lord on high is mighty. So let us not fear. Let us not fear when it seems to you and to me as if the world is going to drown the church. It's like we'll be overwhelmed by the waves of the world and we'll sink. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher, said, The ship of the church may be tossed and turned because sin is in it, but it shall not be overwhelmed because Christ is in it. Jesus is in die boot. Die boot gaan nie sink. Psalm 46, verse 5, we sang that this evening. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The year is in ons midde. And Jesus rules the earth on our behalf. Jesus rules the whole universe on our behalf. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 22, where it says that God gave him as head, uh, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So the Lord Jesus reigns, the Lord Jesus rules, and let all the powers of hell come with all their dark designs. They shall not overwhelm the church of Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Charles Spurgeon, quote, Kings or mobs, emperors or savages are all in the Lord's hands, and he can forbid their touching a hair of the heads of his saints. So Jesus will say, well, he can say to all these evil emperors and governments, he can, you shall not touch one of my children. If he wishes to say that, you will not lose a hair from your head by the command of our king, the king of kings and lord of lords. So if you, if you build your life on the Lord Jesus, you are building on a rock. And if you build on this rock, you are untouchable. 1 John 5 verse 18, the evil one does not touch us. Verse 4 again, the Lord on high is mighty and you are in his hand. Hy is verhewe, hy golwe kom hier by hom uit nie, hy probeer. En hy gaan nie daar uitkom nie. So let the storms come, let the waves crash. Let them pound this rock, let the devil roar like a lion against you. God will make sure, God will make certain of this, that all these attacks that come against his people, he will work together for our good, to our advantage. You see, God's throne, God's throne in the height, God's throne on high in verse 4, that also means that God is exalted above everything. Let me tell you something interesting. Jesus in his human nature, I'm not, talking, I'm not even talking about Jesus as God. I'm just talking about Jesus as a human being. Jesus in his human nature is exalted above the whole universe. Ephesians 1 verse, 20, uh, verse 21. 
every ruler and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So if Jesus, even as a human being, is exalted above all, what about Jesus as our God, Jesus in his divine nature? A.W. Tozer says that the difference between God and a worm, that distance, is the same as the distance between God and an archangel. Because both the worm and the archangel are creatures. God alone is creator. Perhaps you saw that illustration of R.C. Sproul in a sermon where he said, there's Jesus and there's Adolf Hitler. And then he said, you would think the apostle Paul must be about here. He says, not so. The apostle Paul is also there right next to Hitler. Even though he was saved, he was a sinner saved by grace alone. Jesus is infinitely above all his creation. He is the exalted one. He is the God of glory. You see, this, the power of this God is infinite. The power of this God. Let me read you a verse from Psalm 147 in verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God's understanding, God's power knows no limit. So let me ask you, this God, if he can create everything from nothing, what is nothing? It's not this. This is oxygen. And this is Stukstof. He's speaking stukstof and koolstof. This is not nothing. What is nothing? God created everything from nothing. Hebrews 11 verse 3. This God who did this, is there anything impossible for the Lord? Nothing is impossible with God. Genesis 18 verse 14. God can make an axe float. I can a bail a drive. A Easter cop from a bail. It is also the carry Bible. God can raise the dead. God can walk on water. God can change a dead piece of wood, a stick, a staff. He can turn into a snake and then turn it back into a staff again. He can take a staff and then make it bud, bloom, flowers, and then nuts on this dead piece of wood. God can let the sun stand still. He can let the moon stand still. God can make food increase. He can multiply it. God can heal the sick. God can quench the power of fire, not with water, but just quench the power of fire. That three men, Daniel's three friends, they're standing in a blazing hot oven, a blazing hot fire, and nothing happens to them. God can, can let a virgin conceive without a man. He can let a virgin become pregnant. God can do many other miracles as we see in the Bible. Who can fathom this God? Who can understand this God? Who can reach the depths of this God? His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145 verse 3. God alone knows God. What do we know of God? We like, we like people, kids who aren't even in grade R. 
They can't even read yet. That's, that's our knowledge of God. Only the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. 1, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Only the Spirit can search the deep things of God. Only the Son, Jesus Christ, knows the Father truly and the Father the Son. Luke chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Jesus has a name that no one knows except He Himself. Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. Who is like this God? What is the fitting response? What's the gepaste reactie op hierdie waarhede? The fitting responses to lie flat on your face before this God until He raises you, until He picks you up. Psalm 113 verse 4 to 7. I love this. The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on? You would think the earth, Right? who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Highly exalted. Awesome is this God. Number three, finally. Trustworthy and holy. That's in verse five. Verse five. Betrouwbaar en heilig. So first, trustworthy. In the middle, mid-1900s, there were two German theologians that had a very big influence in the world. The one was named Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann said, we need to demythologize the Bible. These fairy tales. And he said, the Bible's not really true. The history of the Bible is not true. We can't believe that. We must just think, what's the message it's trying to tell us uh, about life and you know, stuff that happens in life? And then uh, later on, Karl Barth, Karl Barth, he came and he said, the Bible isn't the Word of God, and not everything in the Bible is true. The Bible becomes the Word of God for you if you accept its teachings. Then something in you says, okay, it must be the Word of God. And so a, a group of evangelical theologians and preachers, they fought against this. And in 1978, they drew up what is called the, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And so a group of theologians did this. Now, why do I say that? Because verse 5 says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Ich bepalens of getuienis is baie this is the king sitting on his throne. And when the king speaks, what he speaks is true. What he speaks is trustworthy. So there are no errors. There are no mistakes. There are no lies in the words that God speaks. It is all true. Even if atheists come and liberals come, and they're in South Africa also. And in even if they come, and even if people from other religions come, and they say that the Bible is just a human book, you can't trust it. Don't believe them. Verse 5 says, God's decrees are very trustworthy. I remember an atheist saying to me that the Bible contradicts itself. I asked him where, and he couldn't tell me. Or I saw a debate between a Christian, James White, and a Muslim. 
And the Muslims said, yes, but the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is full of mistakes and you can't trust it. Or even when I was a student, one of my lecturers at the theological school said that the Bible is infallible, but it's not inerrant. There are many mistakes in the Bible. Yeah, I did for us to say, any class. Unfailbar, must not faultless. I didn't even know why they allowed a guy like that to teach at the seminary. Or at Tucky's, one of the lecturers, in the first year, this student walked in, it's his first year, the, one of the very first class, classes, the lecturer takes the Bible and says, this book is just a bunch of human opinions, it's twisted. And right now, in the Baptist Union of South Africa, there are a group of pastors who say, the Bible is not inerrant. The Bible is not faultless. There are errors in the Bible. There are mistakes in the Bible. Baptist pastors in South Africa. Listen, the Bible is the inspired word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, Paul says, when we preach to you, you accepted it. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for that which it really is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, knowing first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets, and they said, thus says the Lord. The Holy Spirit spoke through the apostles, and they wrote down the words of Christ without any error, without mistakes. Listen, if this is the word of God, and God cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2, then there are no lies in this book. This book is true. Every part of it is true. I've seen a limit to all perfection. But your commandments are exceedingly broad. Who for Marcus Ivoert here? Psalm 119, verse 160. Listen to what the psalmist writes about the word. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So the Bible is true even in the, in, the, in the details. For instance, if the Bible uses a present tense, it's on purpose. It couldn't be a past tense and it mustn't be a future tense. For instance, when God says, I am what I am, or I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, and Jesus quotes that to prove the point. Or singular and plural. When it says in Galatians 3 verse 16, God made this promise and he said, this promise is to Abraham and his offspring. And then Paul says, it doesn't say offsprings, plural, but offspring, singular, referring to Christ. So even if we don't have the original manuscripts, <coughs> we don't have the, that very first scroll that Paul wrote, the book of Romans. We don't have that. There was a copy and 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 many copies. But now, oh, we only have the copies, so we don't have the original. Maybe there are mistakes. Maybe they twisted something. No, they didn't. The manuscripts we have now, thousands of them, 
They are more than 99% accurate. How do we know that? We know that because these manuscripts were found different times, different places in the ancient world, and yet they all agree. And even the differences there are, are minor differences, spelling mistakes. Or maybe, oh, here's a transcribal a scribal error, where it's a little thing, it doesn't change any teaching in the Christian faith. No major teaching is touched by those little things. The Word of God is inerrant, on of uh, folklore. It's inerrant. There are no errors. It is purer than silver that is purified seven times. Psalm 12 teaches us. Let me just ask you this question. Are you aware of any contradictions in the Bible? Because the people, there are people that know the Bible contradicts itself. If someone says that to you, just ask them where? Uh, uh, uh. And then if they do show you a place, then tell them, have you studied that diligently and thoroughly in its context? And then you go and do the same. And you go and study that passage, and you, you create it on it were, and you'll find in the end there is no contradiction. Where does the mistake lie? In our limitation, in our pervert, perverted hearts and twisted hearts, the mistake does not lie in God. I preached two sermons on this many years ago. Two sermons. The, uh, the titles of those sermons was Errors in the Bible and More Errors in the Bible. Photony Babel and Noch Photony Babel. And I, I went through all these so-called mistakes in the Bible. You just read them and there's a rational explanation for all of them. Every single one. Listen, if the Bible has mistakes, if the Bible has errors, then you cannot trust this book. And as soon as you say, but you can't trust the book, it's not trustworthy like verse 5 says, then you need to ask, okay, so what parts are true and what parts, what parts aren't true? And as soon as you say that, now you're in judgment over God's Word. It's no longer the Word and you under the Word. And so what now becomes the standard of authority and the standard of truth? Your own mind, your own reasoning, science, philosophy, human logic? Instead of the word of the living God. Listen, Jesus said in John 17 verse 17, your word is truth. Not your word is true, it's truth. It's the standard of truth. Everything must be measured against the Bible to see is it true or false. You can trust your Bible. It is reliable, it is trustworthy. God's promises remain as steadfast as He God's word is as true now as it was the day he wrote it. Yes, I know that God used sinners like Paul and Matthew and Peter and Moses. But that doesn't mean, oh, now the Bible's all besmirched and besmeared and now it's a mess and these sinners wrote it so there must be mistakes. These must be their opinions. No. Was Jesus born of a sinner? Was Jesus' mother a sinner? Yes. Does that mean Jesus is now, oh, now, now he's contaminated? No. And the same, when God used human beings to write the Bible, He made sure it remains without error. And then secondly, holy. You see that in, at the end. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Uh, A.W. Tozer said about unbelievers, that unbeliever, he may fear God's power, he may admire God's wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. God's holiness basically means no one is like God. 
God is unique. God is exalted. God is in a class of His own. He is highly exalted. And because God is holy, the place of His special presence is also holy. And that's what verse 5 says. Holiness befits your house. In the Old Testament, that was the temple. And especially the holy of holies. There was one part in the, in the temple of God. No one could enter there. Only the high priest, one day in a year. If he entered that holy of holies any other day, he would die. He would fall down, drop down dead immediately. Now that doesn't mean God is capricious. That doesn't mean God is spiteful. He just wants to kill people. No, actually God is good. There's a Bible project video where the guy explains, he says, God is like the sun. Is the sun good? Oh, many wonderful benefits we receive from the sun. But the sun is dangerous. You go too close to the sun, you'll disintegrate, you'll be destroyed. God is like that. God is good. But you cannot come too close to Him because He's a holy God, He's a sinner. And yet, God wants to be close to us. He loves us, so what's He going to do? This is what He's going to do. He will not give up His holiness. He will not give up His holiness. So if we want to come into the presence of this holy God, our hands need to be clean and our hearts need to be pure, says Psalm 24 and Psalm 15. So who of us, which of us, who of us qualifies to come into the presence of a holy God? Proverbs 20 verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I have purified myself from my sin? None of us can say that. Even in the presence of a holy God, these, these pure, sublime, glorious, heavenly beings, flaming beings called seraphim, they cover their faces because they cannot behold the holiness and the glory of this God. So what of, what, what of us then? What about us? How can we shall a jealous and prideful and lustful and bitter and angry and dishonest and unholy sinner come before this God? He whose eyes are too pure to look at evil? No sinner will stand before God without a mediator, a middler, someone to come between us and the Father, someone who can bring us to the Father. It is not true to say God accept, accepts you as you are. You need to change. I need to change. We need to be cleansed. We need to be purified before we can stand before this holy God. And that is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came through his perfect life and his death on a cross to forgive us, to cleanse us, to make us acceptable, to purify us. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Father accepts the perfect life of Jesus and the death of Jesus in your place. So God the Father no longer looks at you. He looks at one and one only, His beloved and perfect Son. And if you are hidden in the Son, if you trust in the Son, if you believe in the Son, then His blood will cleanse you from all sin and the Lord Jesus will cover you. Like I said this morning, the baby chicks, the cocons, the chicks come under the, the wings of the mother and you're safe. And so the Father sees you perfect, perfect, because you are hidden behind the Lamb of God.
Is this the God you worship? This God who is so holy, he will not look at sin. Is this the God you worship, the God who is so loving that he becomes a human being and nails, up, nails pierce his hands and his feet? He's butchered, he's slaughtered like an animal. Is this the God you worship? And he does this out of love to sinners to save us so we can be with him forever. If this is not the God you worship, you are worshiping an idol. Because the God of the Bible is not only, oh, God is love. The God of the Bible is a holy God. His holiness is a loving holiness. And His love is a holy love. It's not holiness or love, it's both. It's not either or, it's both and. And all these other attributes. So let us worship this God. If He's a good God, and if He's a holy God, if He's both of these, that's what our worship should look like. Our worship must be serve the Lord with joy, coming to His presence with gladness, with thanksgiving. But our worship should also be with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And to put the two together, Psalm 2 verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Or to put it another way, be holy for I am holy. Let me close with this quote by Morris Roberts again. All, verbeistering, verwondering, all, awesomeness, all amazement and fear are the proper reactions when you come to a worship service. There should never be entertainment in God's house as part of divine worship. God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Be still and know that he is God. Lord our God, we muster all our knowledge and strength and wisdom and vocabulary, all the words we can bring, It is not sufficient, it can never be enough to worship you the Most High. Oh, even our hearts. We can bring all our emotions of reverence and awe and fear and love and joy. What is that before the Infinite One, before the Almighty? So we just come and lay ourselves before you and ask, Oh Lord, will you lift us up? Will you pick us up? We bring our worship in faith in Jesus, trusting that that is enough. Your Son is enough. Your Son is the perfect one. Receive now the praise we sing to you. For Jesus' sake, amen.